Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Just to let you know right off the top, uh, we're going to be having a couple of weeks break uh, from putting out new episodes in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully that will give you a chance to catch up on any old episodes you might have not had a chance to listen to yet. And also uh, Robin and Josie are both away on tour in different parts of the world at the moment, which makes it less easy, as you can imagine, to record uh, new episodes. But we will have new episodes of the Science Shambles podcast coming out soon. Helen Chersky is going to be hosting uh, the next few episodes of those, so make sure you subscribe to the Science Shambles podcast and Brain Yapping with Dean Burnett and Rachel England will be carrying on. We'll be still putting out new episodes every second Monday, so make sure you subscribe to that as well. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters for all of your continued support of the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support that, or us rather. Tickets for Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People are on sale now, as is the Compendium of Reason. Lots of special guests will be at all of those shows. Go to the events page on Cosmic Shambles to check those out, as well as all the other events we've got coming up from the Cosmic Shambles Network. We'll be at the Royal Institute with two shows in June and at the Cheltenham Science Festival as well. We'll be at the Latitude Festival. We will be at the Blue Dot Festival. Check out the website or follow us at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter to get all the info and news on those as well as solo dates for Robin and Josie and other Cosmic Shambles chums. Now on to this week's episode, which is with Robin and guest co-host Beck Hill back for her final appearance sitting in for Josie uh, with our special guest Josh Cohen, author of new book Not Working, uh, and it includes a special cameo from one of our Cosmic Shambles regulars, Matt Parker. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to... Sorry. No, it's fine. I like the water sound effects. Welcome to uh, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, we are joined only briefly mm. by uh, Beck Hill again, who is uh, waiting for Sunday Times number one bestseller author Matt Parker yes. uh, to turn up. And to Josh Cohen, who is the... Well, the, I, I first met... It was probably... Was it the... I did a documentary on Ready for about self-help. I think that was the... Oh, no, I first met, of course, around a table um, talking to a bloke who'd worked on Beverly Hills 90210. We were at the Hay Festival and we, it was one of those annoying bed and breakfasts where you all share a table. I'm not overly keen uh, on that because there's some people you want to meet and there's some people you don't want to meet. And this guy, uh, he'd been a producer or something on Beverly Hills 90210? A producer on Beverly Hills 90210. As a yeah. non... I'd never seen it. It's never been part of my cultural landscape. No, I never watched it. And that was the only amount I knew about it. And he certainly had some stories that didn't seem to be stories to tell. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Although, awkwardly, I actually did used to watch it. That's not awkward. You're a slightly no, no. younger man than me and you, you would have, uh, you know, designed your life around it. 
Every yeah, more time or less. I see you, I think Beverly Hills. Yes. Beverly Hills therapist. Yeah, I get that is, too much. Yeah, <laughs> it's the way you carry yourself. Yeah. You carry yourself with nothing more than Freudian sunshine. Yes. Um, you, before we get on to your latest book, Not Working, uh, you also wrote the How to Read Freud book. Yeah. And Freud plays... Uh, well, I think it would be fair to say an important part, not merely in your professional life, but I would imagine generally in terms of what, what he... There the seems to... First of all, when were you drawn to him? When did you... Do you, do you remember a point of going, right, there's... Because when you were growing up, he would have probably been during one of those times where people were... Uh, he was probably in one of his unfashionable phases then? Yeah, I, I would think he was just moving out of a fashionable phase. All these new currents of psychology were discrediting him he wasn't scientific or he was too severe he was kind of surgically cold and so um even really in the US where he'd kind of taken over the whole paradigm of psychiatry um he was beginning to fall out of fashion a bit um other modes of much more kind of huggy intimate disclosing psychotherapy um were becoming much more fashionable and so um, when I found him, really, he'd kind of migrated. I mean, I, I was an English student. I mean, I, I was not interested in being a clinician at all. Uh, I wasn't particularly interested in anything, in being anything, because I was 18, 19. And I just went to a lecture on Freud and literature, because in a way, that's where you found him in the late 80s when I was at university. Um you know, people were talking about literature in conjunction with all kinds of theories, and so I came across Freud. And it wasn't, you know, that I got deeply into the content of his theory. I, I, at this point, I didn't know what the Oedipus complex was. Um, I just took up this one idea, really. There was just this one idea that really got under my skin, caught my imagination, which was just the idea that you know, our consciousness is divided, that we are always one thing and something else, and that the human mind is always in conflict. And that struck me as being not just compelling, but also beautifully obvious in a way that was actually quite relieving, as well as illuminating. It sort of made me feel right. Okay, now I've got a handle on what is what happens to me day to day. Um on my indecision, my anxiety, on, on how kind of strange and difficult it is to be alive. So, you know, that, that was my sort of first in. I, I, I actually found him really congenial without, of course, having read any. Uh, as an well, isn't that the thing that most, most people actually have an opinion on him without having... Yeah. I, mean, I was going to say, the only, the only way I know Freud is from pop culture. Yeah. yeah. It's from references in mainly comedy shows. Yes. Like things like... Uh, Black Books and Simpsons and, and basically, you know, the whole range of things where it just gets a mention. And I don't even remember at any point finding out who he was. I just sort of knew. But it's like in the same way that I had to explain to my brother recently that Planet of the Apes was never a musical, but he assumed from The Simpsons. <laughs> Do you know it was a live show, though? My my uh, booking agent, uh, who also worked with uh, his name's Mike McCarthy, and also worked, I mean he he's part of the booking agency. He's also a director. Um, used to work with Joan Littlewood, but also in the nineteen seventies, they did a live arena Planet of the Apes tour with real horses. 
I thought you were going to say real apes. No, real horses. Yeah, that. They, they don't know about. I'm trying to remember. There was, there was one of the um, one of the guys who writes The Simpsons. He's a huge Planet of the Apes fan, and eventually someone actually sent him one of the original chimpanzee masks, <gasps> and he'd like looked at it and it hadn't been worn, you know, for forty years. But he thought, oh, I can't resist it. And of course, he put it on, and now it was really quite toxic. There were all these kind of little oh, rubber spores yeah. he breathed in, and he had to be hospitalised. No. Yeah. Oh wow! He so he, he'd lost the power to speak. So of course. <laughs> Then he was transported to a planet of the eight. Anyway, look, uh, but it's um, but it is true. Yeah, he, he couldn't resist it. He thought, "Oh, I've got to put this on." Yeah, oh, cut, cut his cut his That's life amazing. expectancy by twenty years, but it was worth it. Yeah, it was just for that one. Uh, the uh, uh, but what do you? Um, I mean, do you, uh, uh, as a comedian, very mm. often comedians, you know, we're, we're, when we're not showing off, you, we can be, you know, relentlessly analytical, and you and you have a lot of that kind of that quiet time where mm. you're going to gigs or whatever, and you're in yourself. Do, do you find yourself almost in a kind of, uh, you know, self therapy? Have you have oh. you ever dabbled in in uh, ever ever done anything like that? Um, I've never been to therapy, but I do morning pages which is where you do three A4 pages of mm. uh, um, stream of consciousness writing in the morning. I say I do them. I haven't done them in a couple of weeks now. But I find them, uh, when I get into a funk, I find them really useful the, because eventually when you're doing stream of consciousness writing, and it is better, I hate writing by hand, but it is better for just mm. blah. Because um, when you're typing, there's an element of this needs to be of, of a readable thing. And the whole point of morning pages is you don't go back and read them. But um, it does mean you start to sort of, your mind wanders and you start to talk about the things that bother you and the things that are affecting you and then writing them is the same as sort of saying your fears out loud. You start to realise that, oh, that's not really logical and why was I worried about that? Or it makes you realise that, oh, I've been really stressed recently because actually this has been looming over me and I've been trying not to talk about it all this time and a lot of stuff comes out that way. But then you find that you go off on tangents and find... Punchline situation. I mean, I came up with an entire sitcom series that I'm now in the process of pitching and writing the pilot for because it just spilled out when I was doing these pages and then the world just sort of created itself over time. So how does that process work then? Because I know uh, Simon Amstel, I know, does it as well. Mm. Uh, in fact, the person, Carolyn Wilson, who uh, I, I wrote a, uh, a film with, Australian film called Razzle Dazzle, um, that partly came out of, of kind of just writing yeah. and writing and writing and... Um, as I, 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 like, there's no real rules other than the fact that, yeah, you just got to do three pages. You just write, you can, if you're like, sometimes I've been tired and I've filled two pages with just, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. But when you get to a certain amount, you get bored of writing, I'm tired. Mm. And you just, it reminds you what it's like to be bored. Because these days it's so hard to be bored because you're constantly got something distracting in place. You you got your phone, you've got your music, you got podcast, you got everything mm. you need to distract mm. you from life. But so much self reflection and creativity comes from moments of boredness when you when you forget what it's like to feel nothing and then get that oh that antsiness. And I find that the only time I feel bored these days is when I'm writing them, which is often why I don't end up doing it because I think oh it's you know, there goes 45 minutes and I'm going to be bored. But you, you do, you get bored and then and then you kind of push through it, I guess in the same way that athletes push through the wall and then you come out the other side mm. and you end up sort of... Sometimes they're fruitless. Sometimes you end up writing three pages and it's just nonsense or whatever. You just sort of scrape the surface of something. But, but then there's other days where you'll 
sort of it, come are out. Are you quite and... strict about not reading over the pages? I found that interesting. Uh, no, I'm not strict. No. no, I'm not. I've, um, especially because some ideas and stuff have come mm. from it, uh, joke ideas and, and things like mm, that mm. have have come out of it. So I, I do try and go back. The funny thing is my handwriting is so bad that I often mm. can't read it. Mm. So sometimes that will just end up as sort of one long line, but the process of my brain thinking the words and my hand doing the bumps to represent the letters and Absolutely, the words, yeah. it might not be legible to for anyone afterwards, but at least it's it's given me a chance to get it out into a physical realm rather than just being all up in my head. That bit about bad writing, I find that I, I try and write different things in, in books when I do signings. You know, some, there's certain mm. things that I sometimes repeat, but I don't ever just put, you know, to Michael, best wishes, Robin Ince, you know, I put <laughs> something different. And I do get people about three or four times a week, someone will send the scanned front page and say, what does this actually say? <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that bit of kind of, in some ways it's good because it remains that we can be covert in what we're doing, but at yeah. times you can't read it yourself. Yeah. And that's where the problem is uh, What's interesting, boredom is, I mean, I, I talked about that with, uh, with, with Alan Moore and various others in, 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 the, in the, the I'm a Joke book. And not working to some extent, it's not that bit of retreating from the perpetual occupation of the mind. I mean, mm. you, you deal with a lot of uh, artists, poets in this, yeah. you know, Andy Warhol yeah. and Christina Rossetti. And so that, that bit of working out the lot. Well, first of all, actually, what was it about the idea of not working? Why, why was that your, your next big project? It's actually deeply personal. Um, I really kind of wanted to justify myself, um, not because I can make any claim these days to being incredibly lazy and lackadaisical because I work long hours and I'm, you know, a straight tax-paying citizen and, and you know, in, in, in that respect, terribly dull and, and uh, work-bound as anybody else. But more kind of a spirit, you know, um, and particularly the spirit of the child I was. I spent a lot of the time as a child being lamented for my dreaminess, for um, always being somewhere else, um, having no sense of urgency. Um, and, you know, I feel like I was made to feel quite freakish. Um, and of course, you know, you can exaggerate this for dramatic purposes, but, but it still feels very real to me, really. Um, uh, certainly early on, it was the subject of both a lot of adult persecution and, and quite a lot of bullying, I think. Mm. Um, because there is something about the sort of the the otherworldly kid that I think infuriates. In, in, it's a much sort of more complicated provocation to other kids than just a kid who's, who's straightforwardly annoying or unpleasant. Um, I think there's it's it's almost as if the, the you know the the implicit question is well, what is it that's so great up there in the clouds? Um, that keeps you away from us and that makes you think that somehow there's something better going on. Um, and in a way, the book is an attempt to answer that that question for myself. I suppose, although there is quite a lot of memoir, it's, it's in the end in quite a roundabout way to explore, you know, what what does it mean to have a dimension of ourselves which is actually quite inactive and resistant to doing 
And if you're, yeah, if you're not mm. doing them, people go, why aren't you? Even if there's no purpose. I mean, I think, I don't know if you find, a lot of the people I know who are most driven to do things are driven to do things because they know how lazy they are. Mm. So most of the mm-hmm. busiest people I know uh, believe they're inherently lazy. And yeah. that and that can be a very unhealthy thing because mm. you drive yourself just to work, you know, really hard because you know that you do nothing. My, a... my husband has a full-time day job um, working for the National Theatre, but then he also tries to write plays all the time. Hello, Matt Parker. Matt Hi. Parker, Sunday <laughs> Times number one bestseller author. Thank uh, you, thank you. entered uh, Humble uh, Pie Yes. This humble, oh, was it, oh, Should I share a seat? And my yeah, come on. Well, yeah, I mean, the seat has Josh, sort this is of. Matt, Matt Parker, oh, so so it's very wooden, isn't it? Literally just coming there about to go go to lunch, but uh, he was a little bit late, so we I dragged back, drop back in for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now we're sharing a chair, <laughs> one cheek each. <laughs> Um, but, uh, um, yeah, no, I was just going to say that um, uh, uh, my husband, Gavin, he works really, really hard um, at his day job. And then outside of that, he's he he quite... At the moment, he's really enjoying writing plays. So he's yeah. been doing that. And when he's not doing that, he's usually reading other people's scripts or books or whatever. And then he'll have a day off and he'll sleep in and he'll, you know, do loads of washing and he'll clean the bathroom and he'll do all this stuff. And at the end of the day, he'll say, oh, I didn't do anything today. I'm mm. like, it was your day off, and you did loads of house stuff. And he's like, yeah, but I didn't write. And I said, it's your, it's a day off. That's the point of having a day off mm. is that you get to not do something. But he really lambasts himself if he doesn't do, if he doesn't feel like he's achieving something. He doesn't, in, you know, he feels down. I find, it, I mean, sometimes you got to take your own advice as well, don't you? But I keep saying to him, like, let let yourself have a day. Just rest. I mean, do you find Josh as uh, you know in terms of in in, in your your therapy, your practice of therapy? Mm. Do you find there are, are a lot of people coming in with this particular kind of the the, the issue of? Because I certainly feel that I I find I cannot trying to take a day off. Just go. To, I don't have to do anything today. There's nothing. I've, I've done everything I need to do, and it makes Doesn't me work. feel sick. Yeah. And it mm. my, my muscles mm. kind of you know it's really hard. And I presume there's more and more people who. That was the other trigger. That was the more immediate trigger. I mean, there's this sort of lifelong preoccupation with the problem, but then it kind of, you know, crossed with something that was going on in the consulting room, which was absolutely that people were coming in and saying they kind of needed and yearned for a break in the noise of their own head and of the world but they somehow can't give it to themselves. That every time they try... This is the thing that you're, talk, you're, you're talking about, I think. That every time you try to, instead of inducing the kind of restful, neutral um, uh, state that, that they're looking for, it kind of induces innovation and, and anxiety um, and has exactly the, the opposite effect that's being looked for. Matt, what do you do? You find? I mean, you work yeah, very hard. You tour a lot. You, you do a lot of stuff in schools. You're writing books. And it's a case of like, because my wife Lucy is, is does similar amounts of work, and she'll leave like like you and Gav. She'll leave for a weekend mm. and go right. Matt, take a day off. And she comes back. I'm like, hey, I totally relaxed. I only made one video. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. Our solution has been walking holidays. So we've found if you're walking, you can't be checking email. You can't be doing anything else. And often reception's terrible anyway, and you've only got the other person to talk to. And so we have been quite, you know, it's a, it's a structural solution. If we do a walking holiday, we feel like we're achieving, we're doing something very different, and we can't be doing the things which normally fill our time. And also, we deliberately don't plan ahead. So every day we'll book where we're going to stay at the end of the next day, right. and that release from 
having everything dictated and then trying to fit things around the edges. I mean, I'm saying this because I was looking through your book oh, cool. as I come in. I felt a little mm. hypocritical even just holding it. And like, we've got to have a sub-meeting within this podcast yeah, about yeah. other things. So, you know, we're not we're people to talk. But I found, yeah, deliberately booking in that sort of activity where you can't multitask has worked for us. Yeah. I, I, what I also talk about, which is captured really nicely by the walking holiday, is the idea of, of purposeless activity. Mm. You know, the, the, one of the things that we're all really subject to, and, and I think that's what your husband's talking about. It's not that he didn't do anything. It's just that he didn't do anything which had a kind of identifiable output at the end of it. Mm. You know, you can tidy up, but of course you're only going to make, make the mess again. Exactly. And so there's nothing to actually crow over and say, well, look what I did today, Mum. Mm. Whereas... You know, there's there's something about actually throwing off the tyranny of a purpose, of an output, of, of a task orientation, of feeling that something has to be got to the end of. Mm. But I, I think if you can really embrace it, it, it really refreshes the soul. Mm. Yeah, that bit of not... I ended the day and yet again I haven't written Anna Karenina. What a rubbish day. You know, yeah. one blog post, nothing. You two have to go off, don't you, and go and yes, do your meeting. Yes, we're, we're going to. Uh, yes. Speaking of much. which, it's uh, been fun. The Hitchcockian cameo by uh, mm-hmm. Matt Parker, a talking Hitchcockian cameo. Um, Beck Hill, thank you very much for that. Yeah. I'm going to go with the Stan Lee cameo. That's more my generation of oh, cameos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's more fitting than I appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, I mean, in terms of why people choose... I mean, in... Your experience, I found it as, as you know, you, you recommended someone to me, and uh, you know, I've mm. I've I've been um, seeing another of you Freudians. Um, yeah. I checked the bookshelves when I walked in, and as you know, I always do. Um, and that, you know, for some people, it seems to be a voluntary thing where you go, okay, now is the time. Yeah. And for other people, do you think that they they are fight they they they've made the decision to go, but they hate going as well, and they don't, you know, in, in terms of the different levels of battle even for why they wish to look into this possibility of discovering what may lurk in the unconscious. Yeah, I think there is resentment about coming to psychoanalysis because one of the the ways in which it's different is um, that it doesn't offer quick fixes and it doesn't offer guarantees. It doesn't say this is, you know, uh, a a kind of foolproof, um, uh, evidence-based, scientifically certified... uh, therapeutic treatment um if anybody tells you that you've got to suspect it because no such thing yet exists um whether such a thing could exist is is a matter for debate but there's no question that there is no foolproof um uh, psychotherapeutic available to anybody yet so it it's honest about the fact that it's that there are no guarantees and it says it's open-ended and pe- you know some people know that some people know that they're going into it not quite able to know what it is they're getting into what you know the term of the therapy is going to be um and where they're going to end up um and that means that it they often go into it as a kind of last resort they try a lot of other stuff that looks uh more cost effective and more efficient um and so people have often come to you at the end of a long line of searching and um it's there's often something a bit a bit desperate about them, a bit last ditch, a bit sort of um, disappointed and sceptical about, well, you know, um, why 
they should believe that you can offer anything that they haven't found elsewhere. Um, I find that quite a good atmosphere to work in because, it, you know, the, the bar of expectation is lower at this point. It's harder in a way because you, you often don't have that optimism and energy to work with. But I'm not sure how helpful that is in the long term anyway. If somebody comes in bouncing, then there's something about the fact that, no, they're not going to resolve everything quickly um, that tends to be quite deflating. So I actually am happy to, to be working with people who, you know, don't think of this as, you know, the great treatment of choice that they have massive high hopes for. Um, and for the same reason, actually, I can be a, a little bit wary of people coming to me simply because they like something I wrote. Um, because the expectation is that they're going to find the author of the book in the room, you know, the, the voice that they took from there. And, I mean, I'm not sure they are, really. I think, because I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by it from the, the short amount of time that I've done, which, like, the things that go through your head, oh, is this a boring story? I think this is really boring. Mm. What a boring thing to tell. Yeah, that, that thing. Yeah. Then there is that bit where sometimes you want to go, so what can I do about that? Oh, that's not how this works, is it? Mm. I just have to keep talking. You know, all of those yeah, things. Yeah, and yeah. also, because I was chatting to one friend of mine who, who she's just started, and she says she just sits down and she, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Whereas I know other people, you know, you sit there, has that got anything relevant? Is that, oh, you know, and, and all yeah. of those different things are, as you said, not, or, or there's a point where you go, oh, I think we found the bit in the unconscious now. And that does now seem to have made the spider's web that was required to explain various yeah. different uh, behaviours. Yeah. And then, oh, no. There's mm. more under the iceberg. Mm. Oh, bloody hell. But I'm sure we found everything now. <laughs> oh, but it's unconscious. So all of the, so there yeah. is a, that, that kind of uh, battle, yeah. I've, I find, is... Uh, and I always have that image of um, when Philip Seymour Hoffman's on the couch in Todd Salon's films, film Happiness, Happiness yeah. and he's just yeah. making the therapist just making a, a shopping list. Yeah. So I'm always... That bit... Of, yeah. and of what's course, going on behind my back? That's right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that sounds like they're having a little sleep. Yes, yep. yes. And of course, there's, you know, the, the therapist in that film happens to be a, a pedophile as well. Which, yeah. Uh, which doesn't help matters. Um, but yeah, that's right. I mean, the, 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 these questions that come to you, because of course, you know, part of the training, as I don't need to tell you, is that you uh, spend an awful lot of the time on the couch yourself. So all those questions have come up for me. Um, and the the to filter or not to filter question, um, it doesn't, I mean, what, what's interesting, it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter how much you've read or how much you've trained. Um, when you're inside, you know, the kind of the febrile cavern of, of the consulting room, um, it just doesn't seem it does just doesn't seem to operate all that knowledge you know you you're you're there and you have the same anxiety about being boring tedious repetitious um and also kind of irrelevant you know evasive staying off topic you you, you know not necessarily knowing what it would be to be on topic um yeah the the thing that i still appreciate about this uh, I think is 
is that you get to a point where you realise that what matters here is process more than content. And that there's something about the exercise of free association that gets you on much more intimate terms with your unconscious mind. In that sense, I, I think that, you know, good psychoanalysis is on a continuum with other forms of creativity. You know, it's a bit like Beck was talking about, you know, morning pages before. Um, it's, it's one of those processes where you just become more on, on, on easier, more curious terms with the back of your mind and the stuff that's stored there. And looking for that one kernel of truth that unlocks anything is a bit of a misleading cliche in that regard. I, I think it's it's much more about being on speaking terms with your unconscious life. And, you know, it, that has so many different dimensions to it. Um, partly it's about, well, I mean, it, it can involve experiences of, of loss and disappointment and abandonment, but it can also involve all kinds of kind of outlaw impulses, whether they're sexual or whether they're destructive. And, you know, it, it, it can just mean coming to terms with the possibility that you're not such a nice guy as you thought you were, which is... Um, I think that was one of the... First, I remember when we did the interview for, for I'm a Joker to You, that was yeah. one of the first things you said was yeah. the realisation of, of what you might be and that, in fact, it's not as bad as you think to not be the... We better quickly talk about not working because yeah. that's your book, which is um, your why the artists you chose, mm. including Christine Rossetti. Not, and, no, it's, it's Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson. Yeah, why yeah. do I say Christine? Well, because I've just uh, no, I've just read a book. Wh which book have I read about Christine Rossetti? Then, oh no, I've been reading Jacqueline Rose's book. Yes. Uh, that's why. Yeah. Uh, Emily Dickinson and uh, Orson Welles and Andy Warhol. You know, why did you choose them to be your? You know, each one. Is, is really, you know, the main body of that chapter and then around that circumnavigate various different ideas, including, mm. you know, the composites of, of, of people you dealt with yourself, yeah. the, the autobiography. Yeah. Um, because, uh, in a way, they're quite perverse choices. I mean, you don't look at any of the four and think, oh, yeah, not working. Um, they are all insanely prolific figures. Their, their output is, um, in, in each case, I mean, you know, Emily Dickinson, probably the most modest, a mere tranche of 2,000 poems. Um, uh, Orson Welles, of course, by 25, as I say, you know, had the kind of CV that would grace uh, a man of 75. Um, uh, absolutely astonishing prolificity. Um, uh, Andy Warhol, notoriously workaholic. Um, David Foster Wallace, um, a reasonable claim to have written the longest single volume novel in the language, um, uh, possibly in any language. So, um, where is it? Yeah, I think I think you know. I mean, Proust is obviously longer, but Proust is in volumes. Twelve, yeah, right. And they are in some way separate novels as well as as one big novel. Whereas Infinite Jest, I think, is 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 a one volume novel, and I'm. I can't, I can't think of one that's longer. I mean, it's well over a million words. Um, yeah. Um, so, so I'll just, just for 
that's a thing that fascinates me. When an yeah. author writes a book that long, yeah. what are they... Is that... Because you know, sometimes... I've just been reading Jarrett Kobuk's uh, latest book, mm. the guy wrote, I Have the Internet, the new one, Only Americans Burn in Hell. And in that book, it's not a particularly long book, but he does... You can see at times that, uh, much like the comedian Stuart Lee, there are times where he's almost going, do you know what? I'm annoyed that I'm entertaining you. You know, there's that certain... He will bring, yeah. you know, you, the reader, in... Yeah. And you can see that kind of, as some artists have, and I've seen it, comedians and others. that, And in the same way, that idea of writing a, a book of that length mm. and therefore immediately you are reducing, you know, you know that at least it's going to be readers who imagine they'll have the tenacity, yeah. many of whom won't have the tenacity. I've, yeah. I've, I've still not finished it, you know, years on from buying it. Yeah, yeah. Um, why... Are they doing it? I mean, I don't know that there's any one motivation for undertaking a project of, of that kind of gargantuan scale. I think in his case, it's, you know, one of his former students quite famously described him as a noticing machine, which is a wonderful compliment to give a, a novelist. But in a way, it's, it's a kind of ambiguous one. Because when you notice everything, um, and that's indeed, you know, a big element of his genius, that he sees things out of the corner of his eye. But he doesn't, doesn't just see them out of the corner of, the, of his eye. He, he writes them down, and he writes them down often, whether or not they're actually relevant. So in other words, he doesn't, he doesn't edit. It's a deliberate strategy. He doesn't sort of heighten and select and emphasise, which is after all, what artists are supposed to do. You know, they are kind of editors of a world. Um, and by boiling down and concentrating, they show us what matters to them and what might matter to us. Whereas what Wallace does is extraordinary. He, he kind of does the opposite. He, he, he kind of bangs everything down on paper. Um, and he challenges us to say, why should you follow this rather than follow that? You know, so, I mean, I, I quote this kind of very strange sex scene early on in, in Infinite Jest where there are all kinds of extraneous details whose point is to have no point, right? They are completely redundant as far as narrative goes, as far as scene setting goes, except that they make it weirder, but they don't really tell us anything about the characters involved. So um, why is he doing this? I... I I don't know, but it has something to do with, with not working for me. Um, it has something to do with a kind of sensibility that makes work for itself by not filtering in that traditional novelistic way, but just piling detail upon detail, kind of exhausting us, um, you know, there's something about not just the accumulated force of the book that's exhausting. There's something even sort of paragraph to paragraph. It's not a, a, a kind of, a lot of the time, I mean, there are bits, some bits more than others, but it's not a page turner. And, and, and Wallace isn't a page turner because he's very pyrotechnical as a writer. But what, what fascinated me about him and the other three is that they all are obsessed with these 
states of lethargy or slobbishness or sort of exhaustion of one kind or another. And they they mobilise that for their creativity, by which I don't mean they say, well, I need to pause and let myself be exhausted in order to recover myself from my creative life, right? That's a good thing to do, but it doesn't need me to, to talk about it. Warhol is a good example of somebody who takes those exhausted states into the work, makes them the substance of the work, right? Will make a film of, of his sleeping lover, um, and just train the camera on on him for for eight hours straight, you know, all of his work in in some way um, expresses this kind of flat, affectless kind of uh, machine like um, sensibility that you know he said I, I I'd like to be a machine, and this this idea that um, creativity could come out of a kind of inertial impulse rather than the impulse to make something or to to transform the world to just show the world as it is in its kind of flat boring everyday texture i found that completely fascinating you know the idea that i'm not going to i'm not going to do transformative work to this i'm just going to keep it as it is um that that I, I think is, su- I mean, some aspect of that enters into each of the lives and works um, of those four. Orson Welles, it's, it's more about somebody who was so manically overactive, um, so insanely high, kind of hyper-stimulated by his own mind and his creativity, um, that he went into overdrive. Um, there are, there are, sort of periods of his life where his day and his week seems physically impossible, where he's shuttling between, you know, radio broadcast, major theatrical performance, um, uh, second radio broadcast, cabaret performance, you know, doing about six different broadcasts and performances and then sort of, you know, Cutting or editing, uh, editing or, well, you, or you mentioned or one. What was it the, when he was doing a play on Broadway where he's not on for the first like yeah. it's, it's the first half? Yeah. So he'd go off and do a cabaret, a cabaret show, show, and then he'd yeah. turn up and do the, up. the play which he'd actually directed as well. Is yes, that right? yeah. directed as well. Yeah. Just quickly on the final thing, um, Emily Dickinson, and also the. Uh, it's interesting you having come from a background in terms of um, studying literature. Yeah. We talked to Lawrence Scott earlier today. Uh, mm. um, that ability of, say, her poetry or Virginia Woolf looking inside the mind, uh, Henry James, these authors, that, that, mm. that, do we, is that, are we seeing the exploration before the language is there for what would be either psychoanalysis or psychotherapy, before necessarily the language or the, uh, the, the, the kind of solidity of it as, uh, as, as, as an occupation, that these authors are, doing the exploration before yeah. It. yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what Freud, of course, said repeatedly himself, that the artists and philosophers got to the unconscious world before me and all I did 
all I did was discover the scientific method of its study. But um, the unconscious is already there. And in a way, one of the things he's saying is that artists and philosophers, and particularly artists, I think, are, are in a much more kind of intimate relationship with their unconscious. They're in kind of greater proximity to it, which means, of course, they can't do what he does and take some distance from it and study it systematically. But yes, I mean, um, you know, the, the, the literature is just this fantastic, and, and all, all the arts are just this fantastic treasure trove for thinking about the unconscious. You know, I, I can actually be quite wary. I can, in other words, I don't like to see books kind of too quickly or hastily psychoanalyzed as though what you're doing is sort of unlocking, solving their riddles through mm. the ingenuity of the psychoanalyst. Um, you don't want to do that on the couch. So why would you want to do that with, uh, you know, on the page? Um, you don't want to, in other words, just fix or solve somebody or tell them, you know, what's really going on in them as a person. I don't really want to do that with a book either. But I, I, I do think that, you know, a book is this kind of wonderful mine of unconscious currents and that a lot of writers know that they're going into some deep and unknown place in themselves. Um, you know, James, you know, uses the word unconscious a lot, um, sometimes in quite a Freudian way, but it, 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 it almost doesn't matter. I mean, he, he's, he's constantly drawing attention to what a person doesn't know about themselves as being the real drama of themselves and of their lives. Um, and Dickinson, of course, you know, is this is this poet who uses all the kind of um, the instruments or all all of all, all the tools of poetry, um, uh, the line, the syntax, the language itself, um, to go to the absolute outer edges of the mind, to go to the most sort of dangerous places in herself. Um, and she does this from this kind of solitary place in a bedroom in, in Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, and that's what I, you know, that, that's, I suppose, what I found made her so kind of relevant for me, that she withdraws and to the outside world it seems as though she's doing nothing. Um, I mean, her poems don't get published. She's not somebody who has any kind of public presence in the course of her lifetime. Um, and yet, you know, in the confines of this very um, uh, bounded e e external space, she 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 sort of goes to the most expansive place imaginable. I mean, she's got that wonderful line: "The brain is wider than the sky." Um, and you know, she really—I mean, that 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 line. Um, is really kind of cashed out in the poems because you really go to very, very wide and far off places with her um, without, you know, without having to to leave the confines of yourself. I, I find that really fascinating. Well, we uh, Not Working is uh, out now. It's Granter. Um, and 
Oh, yes, Ed, thanks so much for coming in. There's a lot of... Uh, I, I noticed all my pencil marks in it, but I didn't manage to... Uh, frenetic activity tends cunningly to disguise its own emptiness. Ah, oh, there we are. That's what I should have started with, didn't I? Uh, so thank you very much, Josh. Uh, thanks, Go Robin. on to CosmicShambles.com. You'll find out all the other stuff we're doing, uh, um, various other podcasts, uh, including Dean Burnett's uh, podcast, and uh, lots of blog posts, all manner of different bits and pieces, and as I mentioned at the beginning as well, um, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is in Manchester and London at the end of this year, and uh, as well as Josh's book being out, uh, my book, I'm joke and so are you is out in paperback uh should be now i think thank you very much for listening yes josh's book not working is out now robin's i'm a joke and so are you book is out now in paperback as well or you can get yourself a signed copy of the hardback first edition from the cosmic shambles online shop and Matt Parker's book, Humble Pie, is available as well as our tickets for Beck Hill and Josie Long's run at the Edinburgh Fringe. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. You can come to all of our events. Uh, not all, Well, you can come to all of them, actually, but that would be quite the commitment and involve a lot of travel. But you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash events for all the information on all the live shows we've got coming up. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you back here in a couple of weeks. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.